0: You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Muscoota, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, just a few weeks ago, I got to go on a trip with my oldest up to Michigan. And so a really good friend of mine here at Mercy's Door for my birthday in September bought me tickets to go see a University of Michigan football game should be the last reference to Michigan in the sermon today, but I can't promise it. We, we went up there, it was about a, an eight-hour drive, and uh, we were preparing to go see a game the next night, and we stayed with my grandmother. And so, just so you guys know, my backstory, I'm a military brat. I was born at a military hospital in Michigan, and that was, I think for the next year, the longest that I ever spent within probably four or five hours of extended family and grandparents. Right? Like many of you guys know, we crisscrossed across the country, eventually the globe. And so going up to see my grandmother is always a treat when I get to see extended family because there's, there's pieces of connection. And, and she's a talker, which I absolutely love. And so we got there and we stayed up until the wee hours of the night and all we were doing was catching up on family. Now I should mention when I say family, I mean like 72 people. She is the mother of 11 children, and of those 11 children, there are a ghastly amount of grandchildren, so much so that I don't know all the names of my first cousins on that side. And so we're just talking through them, and she remembers so many details about them. Every birth and wedding and high school graduation, and I was astonished at just how vivid her memories were. Mainly because I feel like when I think back about my past, I have like five days in the history of Michael Collins, which is not a long history, very young. That was not supposed to be a joke at all. Like five days that I can vividly remember, right? And most of them are are very specific to me. I remember the day that I went on my first date with Rachel, I remember the shirt that I was wearing. Okay, it was a pink and blue plaid American Eagle button-down. Yeah, that's where I was. And my wife still married me. Okay, pink and blue plaid button-down. I remember when I proposed to Rachel. I remember the day that we got married. I remember the, the, the births of my five children. I remember those days. And then there are a few days that I remember that are not just specific to me, but probably days that we all remember. Right, so this year was the 10-year anniversary of September 11th. And so I remember that on that Tuesday, I was homesick from school and I got a phone call from my mom who said, are you awake? Do you know what's happening? And I said, no, I have no clue what's happening. She said, turn on the television, stay there, I think your dad is heading home. Right, that's a day where all of us can remember exactly where we were. I remember the day in 2003 when the space shuttle Columbia was nearing re-entry and something went terribly wrong and essentially the space shuttle broke up, disintegrated almost as it was coming back into re-entry. I was on a college visit. I was walking into a cafeteria and I remember looking up at a television screen as they were reporting it. I remember when the Oklahoma City bombing occurred in 1995. I got off the bus and I walked home and I remember coming in the door, and I remember my mom watching the television and the news reporting the bombing. I even vaguely remember baby Jessica trapped in a well all night long with lights and cameras and and everything else around the clock, I think for the first time probably, coverage of them trying to rescue her. Do you guys remember those days? Do you remember where you were Maybe for some of you guys, it wasn't those days, but maybe you remember where you were when the OJ trial was going on, which would have been like remembering like three years, I think, straight. Right? Or or maybe you remember where you were on the morning that we found out that Princess Diana had died. Or, Or maybe more happily, you remember the day that the Berlin Wall came down and where you were. Or maybe some of you guys watched the U.S. hockey team beat the Soviet Union or... Maybe some of you guys are wise enough to remember when JFK was shot or when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. Wise enough. Wise enough. Very wise. I love you all. You are very wise. Right, these events are seared in our memory, and I think they're seared in our memory for, for two main reasons. One, they're seared in our memory because they are larger than life. Right, they, they were tragedies beyond our comprehension, or they were moments of triumph or joy that just seemed to kind of reach into the core of who we are and move us. They were larger than life, and yet the second reason we remember them is because they actually happened. They happened on a real Sunday or Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, a real day on the calendar. September 11th really happened in New York City, and in Arlington, in a farm field in Pennsylvania, and it really happened on a Tuesday in the fall of 2001. And JFK was really shot on a real Friday in Dallas on a real street in 1963, and real people saw it and really impacted our lives. Remembering these events, they bring up emotions because things change on that day when those events occur, whether celebrations or moments of grief. An advent, the coming of Christ, is meant to be one of those moments that shifts something deeply for us inside. And yet for most of us, That's not what Advent and the coming of Christ is. It doesn't often have vivid emotions. It doesn't always feel like it has major tangible impacts on our lives, and it's because there's a couple of problems. The first one is that when we think about the coming of Christ, we know it happened, but we don't really know it happened. We can't point back and say, I was there when this happened. It feels oftentimes more like myth than it does history. But our text today is one of the ways that Matthew, the gospel writer, tells us that though this story is incredible, it is true. The genealogy that we tend to skip right over actually grounds Jesus, not in myth, but in reality, in history. I remember the first time I watched The Passion of the Christ, and there's this little scene in the middle of the movie, and it's Jesus working in his wood shop sometime before his public ministry, kind of as a young adult, upper teenage young man, and he jokes around with Mary, his mother. And I remember being utterly caught off guard by the scene. And, and the movie itself is incredibly impactful, if you haven't seen it. It's not light and airy, but it is amazing. But that scene impacted me, and I realized the reason it impacted me is I'd never thought of Jesus being a teenager. I don't find it in any of the four Gospels, and so I would never really wrapped my head around the fact that He was a real teenage sarcastic, potentially, though wholly sarcastic, okay? Which none of us know how to do young man. And Matthew says Jesus was a, to quote Pinocchio, a real boy with a real father and a real mother. He really was the grandson of Jacob. Jesus really was the great-grandson of Matin. Luke tells us in another genealogy centering probably around Mary that Mary had a father named Heli. He was a real man who was really born in a real place on a real date and time. Uh, Rachel is reading this book called Deeper, a a book by Dane Ortland on sanctification, and she shared with me this little quote that drove this home for me. In this book, he's talking not about the first advent of Christ, Christmas, but the second advent when Christ returns, and he writes this, Do we really believe that one day, in that resurrection morning, as Jonathan Edwards famously preached where the son of righteousness shall appear in the heavens shining in all of his brightness and glory that he will come forth as a bridegroom he shall come in the glory of his father with all his holy angels consider it this is going to happen on an actual day in world history already on a certain month a certain date it has been fixed only God knows, but it is imminent. I remember Rachel and I going, it's so strange to think that there's a calendar day circled somewhere. Jesus returns. And what I want you to hear first and foremost as we get into Advent series is that there's a calendar day where God came into human history in human flesh. Probably in November, not December, December, probably in 5 B.C., not in 0 A.D. But He really came. He really was born. Now, the second problem is not that we don't see it as really happening, but that the story itself, the events that were told, are unbelievable. And, and I'm not even primarily talking, hear this, about the miracles of it. I'm not talking about the Immaculate Conception... I'm not talking primarily even about the incarnation of God into human flesh. It's unbelievable because it's backwards. None of it reads like the story of a king. None of it reads like the story or the birth of a hero, the coming of a savior. The story of the coming of Christ is unbelievable because it it occurs like none of us would write it. Not for our hero, not for our king not for the one that would save us, and yet it is actually far greater and far better, far more gracious and merciful and loving of our Heavenly Father than we could ever get our arms around. It is the story of how we are loved beyond belief. And this is what we'll spend the next several weeks looking at, marveling at, slowly unwrapping how the -the over-the-top love and mercy showed by God through the coming of Christ is actually true, which means it's actually really, really, really good news. This morning, we're looking at our first segment of the unbelievable love of God, and it's this, that God's love comes out of our brokenness. God's love comes out of our brokenness. The genealogy found in Matthew shows us how Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of God's love, the ultimate gift is given in the midst of and even is born out of our brokenness. Christ comes from our shame. He comes from our suffering. And He even comes out of our sin. Let's start with shame. Rachel and I have a, a good friend of ours who is a counselor, and he's a good friend now because he began as our counselor. Um, and uh, one time when we were talking to him, I think this was uh, later on after we'd known him, we were just chatting about a couple things, and, uh, and we got on the topic of body language. And uh, we like, everyone have gotten well acquainted with Zoom. He, he's out in Kansas. And so we'll meet on Zoom, and every once in a while, typically we're, we're pretty close up to the screen, he'll have us kind of back up. And then he does, like, some mental jujitsu that I don't quite understand that feels like magic and makes me really uncomfortable because I don't know how to, like, sit because he's reading me. And I'm like... <laughs> I don't know what to do. And one time, he, as he's talking, he said, you know... Uh, Michael, it's really funny that you have your hands in your lap. And I said, is it? And he said, it is. He said, do you know that men and women, when they're nervous, when they're concerned, when they feel threatened, they, with their bodies, will tend to cover up their most vulnerable parts? And I said, no, I did not, or else I would not have sat that way. <laughs> and, but the, 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 the concept struck me, this idea that it is instinctual to us to cover up the aspects of our lives, even our bodies, that are most vulnerable. And we don't just do it physically when we cross our arms or cross our legs or whatever else. We do it emotionally as well, right? We lead with our strengths. You're an interviewer, and the interviewer's like, tell me about your greatest weakness, and what do you say? Either I don't have any, which is only Randy's response that he can have, or my favorite, well, actually, my greatest weakness is my greatest strength. Or maybe something like this, my greatest weakness is that I care too much. Oh, is it? Is that your greatest weakness? Right? Like, we we lead with our strengths. We seek to cover up the parts of our lives, our story that we're insecure about. Or we do, we do this thing where we place ourselves only in positions for us to win. You know, I haven't played a basketball game against another adult male in years, but I will get out on the court with my five-year-old. And I'm like Dikembe Mutombo blocking shots up there. Like, nobody's business. Right? We lead with strength. Why? Because we want to cover up our areas of weakness. A genealogy was primarily not just a historical fact in this time. It was also a moral and familial resume. It would be used to show that you were a good selection for a spouse. Or it would, it would be shown to, to help to build the case for an up-and-coming leader. Here, of all places, we would expect that you'd cover up those vulnerable areas You'd cover up those areas of shame, but that's not what happens. Matthew leads with shame. These genealogies would have been primarily all male names, but there are five women mentioned in the genealogies of Christ Jesus for various different reasons, but all of them showing us that this story, the story of Jesus, is different. The first comes in Tamar. Tamar is the wife of Ur, who was the oldest son of Judah. Judah was Jacob's oldest son. Now, Judah had a son named Ur, and he gave Ur to Tamar. Before Tamar was able to bear a child for Ur, we are told that Ur was wicked and the Lord took Ur. Now, the custom, actually the law in that day would have been for Judah then to give Tamar to his next oldest son. It was a way at that point in time to ensure that a woman who was left without a male heir that would have been her right to property, etc., was taken care of. It meant that her lineage continued. It meant that she would be provided for. But the next son decided that he would take Tamar as his wife, but he would not allow her to get pregnant because the child that she bore would not be his son, but would be counted to the deceased brother. And so the Lord sees that that son is evil and takes him. And then Judah, having one more son, refuses to give Tamar to his youngest son. All of this eventually plays out in an incredible story, where Tamar dresses up like a prostitute and tricks Judah into sleeping with her, by which she is and becomes Pregnant. Who does she become pregnant with? Well, she becomes pregnant with Perez and Zerah, the fathers of Jesus. Rahab, who dresses up as a prostitute prostitute whose story is a mess. It's unsightly. Honestly, it's hard to read. Every year that I I go through Genesis in the beginning of the year and you get to the story of Judah and Tamar and you're you're, you just kind of go I don't like this this is not like no one writes this into a Reader's Digest story but that's true and Tamar is a central part of Christ's lineage and then you go down just a little bit more and you get another woman who's mentioned and that's Rahab Now, oftentimes Rahab is known as the woman who helps the spies of Israel escape the city of Jericho, which she does. But Rahab was not pretending to be a prostitute. Rahab was likely a cult prostitute in Jericho. She was a foreigner. She was ritually unclean. And yet, guess what? From her comes one of the heroes of the Old Testament, Boaz. Now, what is the Lord doing here? Why would He use and declare so loudly two women who would oftentimes be shameful taglines in the Old Testament and not just choose them but then declare them loudly to be a part of the royal lineage that God Himself would step down into? And it's because shame in the hands of our Lord is not something for us to hide Or fear or run from because shame in the hands of our Lord can be transformed even into glory, transformed into a part of our story of redemption. The Lord takes our shame and He brings glory out of it. It's His declaration of power and love that reminds us that even the parts of our life that we hate, that we would love to forget. He doesn't just overlook them, which, by the way, is not comfort. The first probably five or six years of Rachel and I's marriage, Rachel and I would tell you that we didn't really know who we were married to because we were so covering up every aspect of our story and our background that we didn't like that it wasn't until five or six years in when the Lord brought us to our face that we actually learned who we were married to. And this is how most of us live our lives. Your social media persona is not your real life. You have that many kids and you go on that long of a vacation. I know you weren't smiling the whole time. None of you look like that when you wake up in the morning. Right? Like, that's not our real life. And what happens when we lead lives that aren't real is we're not really known, which means we're not really loved. And the Lord says... Not only will I love you in spite of your shame, but I will turn your shame into dancing, your shame into celebration. This is a resurrection God. His love comes out of our shame. And so let me just ask you, let me push in personally for a second. What are the shameful parts of your story that you hide what are the shameful parts of your story that you have determined cannot be used for good and will never be good? And because of that, you are restricting the Lord from using them for His glory, your good, and the joy of His people leading to redemption. It's not easy. Everything about you wants to cover up your vulnerable parts, and me too. But not the Lord. He wants to use them. His love comes out of shame. His love also comes out of our suffering. Christmas is typically described as a season of joy and peace and hope, and it is in Christ. That's why we get to sing joy to the world, because Christ. But apart from that, the world around us still declares that Christmas must be those things, whether they know Christ or not. Right? If, if I start singing this Christmas song, it's the most wonderful time of the year. It is with all those overpriced gifts and my bank account draining and the stomach bug and flu swirling. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Right? The truth is that Christmas for a lot of people is far from the most wonderful time of the year. Parents struggling to provide the expected Christmas, from our culture for their family. Broken homes that are missing, parents or children that are wayward, those grieving the loss of loved ones and the death of ones that they've cared for, or those that long for the marriages or families that they see on commercials, the type of families that buy each other cars for Christmas. If you want to adopt me into that part of your family, I'm good with it. Always wanted a car with a bow on the outside for Christmas. Four years ago, we preached through the book of Ruth as a Christmas sermon series, and we called it Hope for the Hopeless. I began it with this phrase I said, 2,000 years ago, Christmas morning did not come in the midst of a season of cheer. It came in the midst of hurt and helplessness, doubt, and fear. Christmas didn't come for those already rejoicing, but for those longing for something better, for restoration and for redemption. Christmas has always been for the broken. Christmas is hope for the hopeless. Ruth, the Ruth that's mentioned in this genealogy, is such a wonderful and beautiful story. And it's not a wonderful and beautiful story because there's this Prince Charming meets Cinderella love story. The greatest love story in the book of Ruth is not primarily between Ruth and Boaz. If anything, it's between Ruth and and Naomi, and far more so, it's between Ruth and her God, who is gracious and loving. The story is primarily about two women, Naomi and Ruth, who both lose their husbands. And they lose their husbands in Moab, and they return to Bethlehem, what will one day be called the city of David. They return helpless, destitute, widows, impoverished, with no claims to land, No assurance of provision at all. And yet, against all cultural odds and all cultural norms, quite honestly, because Ruth was a foreigner, the two widows end up at the end of the book not empty, but they end up full. Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth, is full. She's full of food. She's full of provision. Her arms are full with a grandson at the end of the story that will carry on her lineage and line, and she's full of family with a beloved daughter in Ruth. Ruth is not empty, but full. She's full of faith in her God and provider. Her home is full with a new husband, and her womb is full with a baby boy. But the redemption outlined in the book of Ruth, as beautiful as it is, the story that goes from suffering to joy actually goes and climaxes in a greater joy here in Matthew 1. We're told at the end of Ruth that Ruth and Boaz give birth to Obed. Obed begats Jesse, and Jesse is the father of one David who would soon be the great king of Israel. But what we didn't know then and what Ruth didn't know is that David would one day through his line begat Jesus. Not the king of Israel, but the king of the world, the king of eternity. And I want you to hear this. The story is a story first and foremost of suffering. We want to jump past that To the love story. We want to jump past it to the happy ending. We want to jump past it to the gospel, the good news. But hear this can we be honest and say that good news is news that invades bad spaces? We experience suffering, and yet Christ, the love of God, is displayed powerfully in the midst of our suffering. This past summer, I heard this great uh, quote about George Mueller, who was a man who ended up starting a number of orphanages in an impoverished area of the United Kingdom, and uh, just a man who started all these orphanages simply through prayer, who refused to ask any human person for help, not because he was too proud, but because he trusted that the Lord Himself would miraculously provide. And there's this story of George Mueller told that one day he gets one of his assistants and he comes up to him frantically and he says, it's finally happened. And George Mueller says, what? And he said, the cupboards are empty. They're bare. The kids are sitting at the table and there is nothing to serve them. And George Mueller runs out of the house. And the assistant begins to walk as he assumes that George Mueller is running towards the kitchen, the cafeteria, but he doesn't. He runs into the the field. He runs into the field, and he goes to one of his sons, and he says to his son, come quick. Come and watch what the Lord is about to do. And I hear that, and I just think, what kind of man has walked through that much suffering and has found the Lord faithful and gracious and kind in the midst of it? That's the only way you have that assurance. Tim Keller wrote this really moving article. He's a pastor I love. If you've never heard of him, just go find any book by him and read it. He has pancreatic cancer right now. And uh, he wrote an article for The Atlantic that was incredibly moving. And as a side note, I loved that a secular news source would ask him to write a reflection on something like death because of his humility and because of the way that he has loved as a pastor, gently and yet truthfully. But he's writing about death, and he said one of the hardest things for him was that when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, he came to the realization that he didn't believe, not truly believe, a lot of the things that he had spent 40 years of ministry telling other people about death, that he had ministered to a number of people in those same diagnoses. He had been with a number of people as they breathed their last breath, but when it came time for him, his knees wobbled. And he doubted and he feared. And the truth is that none of us will know the true love and faithfulness of our God until he has led us through suffering. And out of that suffering, we find his faithfulness His love, His mercy, His steadfastness, we don't find a theory of God. We find a real God that lands on a real page, on a real day in human history like Jesus Christ. His love, God's love, comes through Christ, out of our shame, out of our suffering, and finally out of our sin. Well, the mention of Tamar and Rahab and even Ruth would seem like outliers in a royal genealogy. It's far from the most unblemished of names. The most painful inclusion in all of the genealogy comes after the birth of David at the beginning, or the middle of verse 6. It says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. They don't even mention her name. Now, obviously, Matthew is referring to Bathsheba, but leaving out her name is not a slight on her. Leaving out her name is actually a highlighter to just how big of a deal this issue is, an emphasis on what the writer wants to communicate, which is that Christ comes through a lineage that is deeply broken and saturated in human sin. 2 Samuel 11 tells us the story of David and Bathsheba. David, the king, sees Bathsheba, covets her, desires her, and takes her. And as a result, she becomes pregnant. David, fearing for his own reputation and knowing that Bathsheba is married to this man Uriah, tries to concoct several different schemes to cover up his sordid affair. And when none of them works, he takes Uriah, who, by the way, was one of David's mighty men, which means he was one of the men who, when David was on the run for his life from King Saul, stood by his side and risked his own life to protect David. And yet David, in the midst of shame and guilt, caught in his own sin, sends Uriah to the forefront of the battle, instructs the troops to withdraw from him that he might be exposed and Uriah is killed. Now the baby that Bathsheba was pregnant with died shortly after death, but she conceived again and she bore Solomon, the one out of all of the descendants of David that the Lord chose himself To be the next king. This is the story of Jesus. This is the sin of a man who was referred to as a man after God's own heart. This was the height of the people of God and the nation of Israel. This is the time when the Psalms, the songbook of Israel the songbook of the church today was written. It's the time when they're preparing to build the glorious temple of God for His presence to permanently indwell. And yet, this is also a day reeked and saturated in sin. Uh, About a year ago, I saw a clip on uh, YouTube. I don't know if you guys know that website, but it shows videos and other things, like cats. Um, but one of the videos that I saw, it was a clip from The Daily Show. And this is not a political comment, so please, for the love of all that we just read in Matthew chapter 1, don't take it that way. But uh, they were doing one of these kind of interviews on the streets with, with people, and they're always gotcha interviews, and, and so I take it with a grain of salt. But uh, they were asking the question... When, when were the good old days of America, right? And so, like someone speaks up and they're like, well, like the 1950s. And he was like, right, right, when black people couldn't uh, drink from the same water fountain as white people and, you know, things like that. And they were like, well, no, not, not, not the 1950s, like, like the, you know, like 19-teens. And they're like, yeah, when women couldn't vote. Right, no, absolutely, 100%. And they're like, well, no, 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 Like the 1800s. Like, yes, yeah, hmm slavery. And they're like, uh, well, the founding of our country. And they're like, no, absolutely. You know, when uh, black men and women were three-fifths of a person, and, uh, you know, when the only people that could vote were, like, rich white aristocracy, and everybody else was counted as essentially a nothing in our country. Now, what they were trying to get around and get across is the history of our country is not unique. And what I mean by that is It's broken. It's filled with sin. You know why? Because the history of the world is filled with sin. The history of humanity. Filled with sin. And so, if the Lord Himself is going to write Himself into our story, He's going to have to write Himself into our sin. And the good news is, He does. God shows His love for us that He sent He who knew no sin, though He came out of sin and took on our sin, He who knew no sin became our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the hope of Advent, that He who knew no sin was coming because we knew sin, and it devastated the world and us. And yet, with the coming of Christ is the coming of a type of love that enters into our sin and even promises to redeem out of our sin something good. We think that God's love for us comes when we're finally free of sin. But Christmas actually declares that God's love for us comes through our sin. Now, if you hear that and think, okay, Michael, should we sin all the more? Well, Paul answers that, and he says no. But if you're not at least asking that question, you probably haven't heard the fullness and the shocking truth of the gospel. God's love for us comes out of our sin. Listen, this is the start of two important seasons In our country. It's the start of Advent, the Advent, the first Advent of Jesus, and it's also the start of the beginning of Hallmark Christmas movies, okay? You laugh, right? But statistics show that a lot of you guys are watching them, okay? They don't make money for no reason. Here's what I love about Hallmark Christmas movies. They're all the exact same, And apparently they're all the exact same because that's what we want to see. They all tend to hit on the same desire that we have. And in case you've never seen a Hallmark Christmas movie because you were raised Amish or something like that, let me give you the, the, I'll save you from all of the cheese. Boy meets girl. They fall in love. Something bad happens, and yet they wind up happily ever after. I didn't write the script, but I think I could. Every single one. Now, there's two messages that you always get in every Hallmark movie. The first one is, love overcomes. Love wins, right? And we want this. We need this. We know that real love should overcome, but there's also a second, more subliminal message that you get from every Hallmark movie, and that is that apparently love can only overcome so much, right? Because what is love overcoming in the Hallmark movies? It's like this ghastly secret where like, the guy's like, what? You're rich and you didn't tell me? I don't know if I can be with you any longer. Or she's like... Oh. You had a career as a model before me. I don't know that I can be with you. Right? It, it's some really trivial thing. Or, like, oh, you're engaged to a man that everyone hates, so no one will be upset if I ruin that relationship. We can get over it. Or like, there's this message that love overcomes, but it only overcomes so much. Why? Because we're realistic. And we know that our love that we have for other people has a limit and enough shame or enough suffering or enough sin and our love won't overcome it. But the story of Christmas, the upside down unbelievable truth of the coming of Christ and God's love tells us that His love does overcome it. And it doesn't just get over it, It doesn't just get around our shame and suffering and sin, but His love heals it and redeems it. Romans 8, the greatest chapter maybe in all of the Bible, in the midst of this section about how nothing can separate us from the love of Christ is this odd little verse in verse 35 and 36. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine. As it's written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. John Piper tells us, what does more than conquerors mean? Well, see, conquerors defeat their enemies on the battlefield. But if you're more than a conqueror, then the enemies who you defeat, they get up and actually serve you. When you are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus, when His love is more than a conqueror for us, He doesn't just put our shame to death. He actually takes our shame and He requires it to be a part of a glorious story of redemption, healing, and joy for all eternity. He doesn't just scoot past our suffering He tells our suffering to produce in us an eternal weight of glory that we cannot fathom, and He does not simply forgive and get past our sin, but He uses our sin to work all things together for good. Out of darkness, He produces a great light, and it tells us that we are loved beyond belief. Let's pray.